Our scripture text this morning for our message is taken from the book of Old Testament book of Zechariah, the next to the last book of the Old Testament scriptures, Zechariah chapter 3, and we will read the entire uh, 10 verses of Zechariah chapter 3. Please give your careful attention now to the hearing of God's holy word. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, For they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. There is a great problem that stands in the way of every human plan, and it's true whether they are government plans on a grand scale, as we hear and see debated in Congress these days, or whether it's our own personal plans. That problem is sin. Sin is the infection that contaminates a human race and it poisons all of our plans. It twists our desires and it corrupts our motives. Sin, as described in this text, is a guilty and polluted status before a holy God. And it's the moral equivalent of wearing defiled garments in the presence of a righteous king. But the problem of sin affects not only our plans, but more importantly, God's plan. God has a plan in Scripture which is to reveal His glory in all of His creation and to extend His kingdom authority through in His Son to the ends of the earth. But God, who can do all His holy will on earth, just as He does in heaven, He must first deal with that problem of human sin to fulfill his plan. 
And this is what we see in Zechariah's fourth vision. There are a series of night visions that came to the prophet. And they're somewhat mystifying upon first reading until we realize they're not all interconnected. They're like, like slides or snapshots depicting something of God's kingdom, something of his glory, something of his glorious plan of redemption of sinful humanity. And in those, uh, uh, God rather had, had placed a friendly ruler on the Persian throne that had permitted the Jews to return from exile there to their homeland. Uh, and God had spoken in those first three visions of Zechariah of rebuilding his city and of returning to dwell with his people and of even gathering the nations. And when we hear the word nations in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word goyim, uh, it's passed over into Yiddish, goy, which simply means a Gentile. It's someone from the nations who is not a physical descendant from Abraham. And God has promised to even gather the nations to himself. God would dwell one day in the midst of his redeemed people and he would accomplish all of his saving purposes and the purpose to bring the great purpose to bring glory to his great name. But as we study this fourth vision, we learn that God must deal once and for all with the problem of human sin. God cannot ignore sin or simply dismiss it if he's to remain true to his righteous character. And here, in my experience and observation, this is one of the fundamental shifts that is taking place in this generation. Over the last, perhaps, one or two generations, it used to be my parents' day and grandparents' day that even those who, who did not fear God or know him through a saving relationship with Christ had some sense of moral accountability to a creator. They, they, it was a deterrent for some of the the worst forms, I guess, of, uh, of, of public disobedience or reckless behavior or, or what they perceived of as sin. And by and large, that's been lost. And it came to me when a young friend of mine was doing prison ministry and trying to help these uh, prisoners who had, had served their, their, their sentence and were now trying to be transitioned into society to find gainful employment, and to be responsible citizens. When he met with them in a Bible study, the question was asked over and over again, why can't God simply overlook our sins and just wave his hands so we'd disappear? And my friend would respond, what would you think of a legal system where someone would murder someone and get off scot-free? There would be no, no justice meted out. No, no sense of moral authority whatsoever. And that would that would have caused at least some of them to, to pause and think. Well, we're dealing with the moral order of the creator of the universe, an infinitely holy, righteous God who must punish sin. And that brings us to our first point, Satan's accusation in verse 1. You see, the whole problem of human sin in the eyes of a holy God is symbolized in this vision of a man called Joshua was a common name in Old Testament times. Don't mistake him with the uh, successor to Moses who led the people into the promised land. This is centuries later, uh, after the return from exile. He was high priest at the time of uh, writing the book of Zechariah. 
And Joshua is on trial in a very dramatic courtroom setting. Verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, we could translate that the Satan if you have a Bible with footnotes, standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now the text doesn't tell us explicitly where this scene is taking place. Is it there in the unfinished temple on Mount Zion because the Jews had returned and they had begun the work and they became disillusioned with the hard labor and also opposition from the surrounding peoples who had moved into the territory after the Jews were taken into exile? And so the temple remained unfinished, and yet Joshua had to go about his priestly duties there in an unfinished temple. Or is the scene taking place in some heavenly courtroom? Some of you who are careful readers of the Bible might might see some striking similarities between this description Zechariah is giving us and the first two chapters of the book of Job, where Satan appears in the heavenly council of angels, and he accuses God's servant, Job. In the case of Job, Satan's accusations are false. But when we read this passage, here in the case of Joshua, the high priest, Satan has a very strong case to bring against him. You'll recall that the function of a high priest is to represent the people as a whole. And Joshua is standing there in a courtroom before God's presence, representing not simply himself, but the entire nation of Judah. It wasn't really an independent Judah. It was a province of the Persian Empire called Yehud. And so uh, they had some limited self-government, but really it was under the control of that Persian king. But Satan's accusations against the high priest points out the unworthiness of all the Jews, but also remember the promises going out to Gentile nations as well. The unworthiness of Jews and Gentiles, um, that's, that, that, that's specifically included in the, in the third vision, Gentiles, that God has promised to, to save in that preceding vision, the third vision, which we didn't read this morning. If Satan's accusation sticks, and if Joshua is found guilty, then so would all the people that he represents be condemned. And here is a nation, the people of Judah, returning from an exile, imposed upon them because of their their, uh, sin of idolatry and rebellion against God. At this point in the narrative here, things do not look good for Joshua or for the nation. And so Joshua is the defendant. The angel of the Lord is seated as the judge. And Satan is the prosecuting attorney, standing there at his right hand to accuse him. Now, if you have a ESV or perhaps a study Bible, you'll, you'll see that uh, there is a, uh, the word Hebrew, or the word Satan, rather, in Hebrew, simply means adversary or accuser. As I mentioned earlier in reading through this, there's a definite article before the name Satan. So we could translate it, uh, really, the adversary or the accuser. 
Now, Scripture tells us many things about uh, the devil. Perhaps not as many as our curiosity would, would like to know, but enough to be warned. He is uh, the deceiver. He's the tempter. He's described as a roaring and devouring lion. He's a persecutor of God's people and a murderer from the beginning. But one of Satan's most sinister roles is as the accuser of God's people. Satan, who is the very one who tempts us to sin, now acts as our accuser, pointing out all of the stains of our sins. You might say Satan is also a very great actor. He's a great pretender. And here's one of his most convincing roles he plays. He plays the part of the outraged prosecutor in the court of God, which is the very personification of hypocrisy. Let me just pause here for a moment and consider this. Accusation is a powerful weapon in Satan's hand. And he often uses it against us as the people of God. It can discourage us in our work, and in our ministry, and even in our worship. And discouragement, which is sometimes labeled, if it becomes rather severe, spiritual depression, is Satan's gold for us. Like the high priest Joshua, we fear that God is going to reject our service because of our sin. It's as if a little voice is speaking here in our conscience, what a hypocrite you are, Satan whispers to us. Others are worthy of salvation, but not you. Why don't you just admit it and quit trying to be so holy? Why don't you enjoy the pleasures of sin while you can, and then despair of salvation. The great reformer, Martin Luther, who knew what it was like to be afflicted with Satan's lies, he made this observation. The devil tempts us to magnify our sins and then to look at God's judgments over us and to take our eyes off of Christ. Zechariah's vision continues here in verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. As I mentioned earlier, Joshua was the high priest who was appointed by God to offer sacrifices on the altar there in the courtroom, or the courtyard rather, of the unfinished temple. Now some scholars suggest that, that Joshua's Garments would have been smudged with soot from all the burnt offerings that he was presenting to God. But the filthy garments in this case are not caused by smoke and soot damage. That word filthy is far more graphic in the Hebrew language than that. It's the mess. Now, I'm not a farmer nor the son of a farmer, but I was a neighbor of a farmer and I helped with chores, baling hay, and sometimes with the cows, with the, uh, with the evening milking. And uh, I had to bring them in from the barnyard. And so this is very vivid. And if you have a farming background, you know what I mean. This word filthy is the mess by falling down and then rolling around in your attempt to get up in the barnyard after the cows have been there for a while. You know what happens. It's an utter and absolute defilement that disqualifies Joshua 
from his office as priest. Joshua can say nothing in his defense. Notice he's silent. And nor does the angel of the Lord deny the charges that are brought against Joshua. The great Victorian preacher, Calvinist, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon, made this observation. If Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history, any hour of the day, will furnish him with material for his charges. If the old accuser wants reasons for accusation, he may indeed find as many as he will and continue to accuse us as long as he ever pleases, for we are all together an unclean thing. But the vision doesn't stop there, thankfully. It brings us really to our second point, the Lord's rebuke. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. Joshua remained silent, but the angel of the Lord did have something to say at this point. And their words of power and authority and of great hope for Joshua and for all of us here this morning. From those words, I believe that this, uh, this angel of the Lord is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God who sometimes appeared in the Old Testament, kind of not just a theophany, but a Christophany in what we call his pre-incarnate form before he took upon himself our true humanity there in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So I believe this is the angel of the Lord is none other than our Lord Jesus himself. And we read there in verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, As sinners we have nothing to say to Satan's accusations. But the angel of the Lord, again, who I believe to be the Lord Jesus, can reply in our behalf. Notice what he says to Satan. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Brothers and sisters, this is our only hope. Christ taking up our defense and silencing all of Satan's accusations. For Christ is that long prophesied Savior, and there are many very clear specific prophecies of the uh, of the coming and birth and ministry of Christ woven throughout the book of Zechariah but he is the long prophesied savior who will come to crush the serpent's head that first great gospel promise in Genesis 3:15 the lord rebuke you he says not because we are innocent in his eyes but for two reasons that are given here in the text the Lord, first of all, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now why should that, what, what basis, what strong foundation is that for rebuking Satan's attacks? Well, the Lord is rebuking Satan on the basis of God's election of his people, of God's electing love. Satan's accusation against Joshua also maligns God himself who identifies, who associates with his high priest, Joshua. The angel of the Lord replies with God's election because Israel's standing with God. That promised, covenanted mercy towards his people had never been grounded on their own worthiness before God. God had chosen to deliver his people from Egypt. 
And now he would restore them to his city and his presence would dwell with them simply out of his own sovereign purpose of grace and love. This is what Moses told the people way back in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were any more, you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. <clears throat> but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your father. If our status as God's people depended on our own worthiness or on our own faithfulness, we would be cast out of God's presence forever. But Joshua's hope, and the hope of all of these returning exiles, and our hope as members of the nations who have been gathered into Christ, rests upon the character and the faithfulness of the unchangeable God who promised to redeem a people for his own glory. Paul writes of this in the opening verses of of Ephesians chapter 1. He writes, In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. So what is the practical application of this doctrine of election for redeemed sinners like us? Well, instead of having our mouths shut in guilty silence, Satan's accusations against us are stopped. If you go back to what Charles Spurgeon said in this scene going on here, if God has chosen his people, then it is of no use for Satan to attempt their overthrow. Christ meets Satan with the high mysterious truth of election, which was settled before the world began. And like a chain, like a weapon, he throws it in Satan's mouth to silence him. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Let that be rebuke enough. You see, with that doctrine of God's electing love, which we rest in, we rebuke our own doubts and fears. If God has chosen us in Christ, then we are resting in him alone. By faith. That's our reply. But there's a second reason here, I think, in our text for this reproof from the angel of the Lord. He goes on to say, is, this, uh, is not this a brand which is a burning stick plucked from the fire? That's a vivid description of every one of us in Christ Jesus who has been delivered from condemnation. Now I think... Originally, that fire was a figure of speech for the exile where the people of God had spent 70 long years. Uh, But God had brought his people back from Babylon. And if he had brought them back only to let them perish in their sins, well, God might as well left them there in Babylon. But by snatching them from the fires of exile, God reveals to them that his grace is greater than than their guilt. Satan the deceiver tempted God's people to forsake their God for idols and for all kinds of sins that flowed out of that mother's sin of idolatry, that chief sin of all sins. And that led them deeper and deeper into sin. 
which then God responded by sending his people into exile. But now Satan is silenced. You notice he has nothing to say back uh, to God in reply. God has begun to deliver his people from their sin. And the Apostle Paul offers that same comfort to us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. When Christ returns from heaven, all those who have been plucked as, as burning brands from the fire and delivered through God's electing love and by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, God will complete that work on that final day. The devil is effectively silenced by the work of God in us and for us. That leads us to our final point. Sin removed and righteousness granted. And the question is this. It's always the question of Scripture. How can a holy God accept a defiled sinner like Joshua and all those whom he represents. Well, we've seen that they are chosen by grace. They are plucked from the fire. But then how does God deal with the problem of our guilt and corruption? You know, priests in the Old Testament, if you read the description there, the book of Exodus and other passages and numbers, they had to be spotlessly clean to enter God's presence. So how can God accept this priest in all of his filthy garments? Zechariah's vision answers with the act, the decisive definitive act of sin removed. Joshua is standing there in filthy clothes, and it is a picture of all of us in our original sin, in our fallen state. Isaiah who writes these familiar words in chapter 54, verse 5, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. King James puts it, filthy rags. But here in Zechariah, the angel of the Lord gives this command, remove the filthy garments from him, from Zechariah, from Joshua rather. And then he turns to Joshua and says, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Brothers and sisters, what a stunning vision this is, a picture of the forgiveness and cleansing Zechariah sees. You recall that the high priest was the one appointed by God who offered sacrifices first for himself and then for the sins of God's people. And Jesus Christ, we learn under the new covenant, is the true high priest, the final high priest, whom Joshua in the Old Testament pointed ahead to. We have these words of Hebrews 9.11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, that's what the high priest had to offer up, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And remember that in Hebrew, the name Joshua is simply the Lord saves. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua. Jesus is that Joshua who was to come 
and who cleansed this earlier Joshua and all those whom he identif- who, who, who are, uh, he identifies with through his own future coming to die as an atonement for sin. Perhaps some of you have <clears throat> taken a tour to, to Germany and you visited Wartburg Castle. It's the place where after Martin Luther's heroic stand there at the uh, Diet of Worms, uh, where he gave that speech, and it's been recorded in different ways, but in, in essence, he cannot deny the things that he has written that were true about the gospel of God's grace, the doctrine of justification of sinners. And uh, on his way uh, back from that diet to his home, where he was promised safe conduct, but we know that the uh, Holy Roman Empire did not always abide by its commitments of safe conduct. They did so in the case of John Huss, and he was burned at the stake. So he, uh, Luther was kidnapped by Friedrich uh, the Elector, his prince, and brought to a, a kind of remote castle. And uh, he was very productive during this time. It's when he translated the Greek New Testament into the German language and became one of the, the fathers of, of, of the spoken, of the written language at least. Uh, he, he kind of standardized that language in his time. But though he was working very hard, uh, he, he felt keenly the accusations of Satan against him. And apparently at one point there in hiding, he dreamed that Satan appeared holding a long scroll with all of Luther's sins written out and then being read aloud by Satan. And Luther's reply is, it's all true, Satan, and there are many more sins which are known to God alone. But write this at the bottom of your list, the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all our sins. And then as the story goes, and this part may be somewhat apocryphal, he picked up an inkwell from his table and threw it at the devil and left a black spot on the wall. And I'm told that tour guides will point to a little smudge in the wall and say that's the ink spot. And I, I can't verify that, but I can verify what Luther spoke because he wrote about it later. Well, this is how we reply to our guilty fears and to our troubled conscience. We look to the blood of Christ that says to us, verse 4 of Zechariah 3, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away. But there is a second act, a final act here, that the angel of the Lord did for Joshua. It's not enough to have our sins forgiven. We also need a positive righteousness in which to stand before God. So the angel of the Lord says in verse 4, I will clothe you with pure vestments. And what Joshua received was not his own righteousness, but the righteousness of another, what Luther called an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness belonging to someone else. The righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he alone earned for us through his perfect obedience to the Father. Isaiah sang of this gift of righteousness in a beautiful song there in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me in the robes of righteousness. I worshipped with a church, uh, at a church in seminary uh, where someone in the church was able to put that little 
verse to a, to a gospel chorus or to one of her own composition, and we would sometimes sing it together. Well, these are the two great benefits of our justification. By grace through faith, sin is removed and righteousness is conferred upon us. It's granted and received through faith in Jesus Christ. What's the significance of that turban placed on Joshua's head? Well, I think it reminds me of the way Aaron was first dressed by Moses, by his sons, when he became the very first high priest. And on that turban was a little gold plaque that says, Holy to the Lord. It appears once again in the final chapter, chapter 14 of Zechariah. And it signifies that God has placed his holy name on us. And that symbolizes for us, I think, both the assurance of our full acceptance in Christ, but also once we have been redeemed and forgiven and justified, our calling to live a life of godliness, of growing likeness to Christ. Let me just close with this observation. Satan finds us when we are weak. At times when we are physically and emotionally exhausted and spiritually depleted, we know that there's sometimes, and very often, a, a natural letdown after spiritual victories. And we hear that voice whispering in our conscience saying, you are a very great sinner. You've put yourself beyond the reach of God's grace. What's our reply? Do we try to defend ourselves? The reply we hear so often today, well, I'm not as bad as the guy next door living to me. You should hear and see the kinds of things he says and he does. No, it's no, it's no defense whatsoever. Can we point to a righteousness of our own? Or do we rest in that gospel proclamation that Zechariah gave us centuries before the birth of Christ. And we say, yes, it's true, I am a great sinner, but Jesus Christ is a greater Savior. This great good news of our pardon and the gift of Christ's righteousness is so clearly expressed, I think in the words of a, of a contemporary hymn, before the throne of God above. I think it's a, a Keith, uh, it's a Getty uh, hymn, but that second stanza says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, Jesus, and pardon me. That is our answer to Satan's accusations. We look to the cross where that precious blood of Jesus was shed for us. And then we look to his perfect life of obedience, which is credited to my account before God, his righteousness. God has then placed his name upon us, holy to the Lord, his possession, so that henceforth we should live for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we thank you for that gospel that is preached centuries before the birth and ministry and the death and resurrection of our Savior. We thank you that it does reveal our sin.
But it does not leave us there, but it points us to that forgiveness through the blood of Christ and that righteousness of our Saviors, which is ours through faith in him alone. We pray, Father, that you would encourage us and build us up and give us these weapons to fight against the evil one when we are tempted by his lies. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.